As Eckhart Tolle said, boredom, anger, sadness, or fear are not yours, not personal. They're conditions of the human mind. They come and go. Nothing that comes and goes is you. Join Sue Jackson every Tuesday at 10 a.m. for Finding Human, a look at the wonder that is the human mind, right here on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human, and my guest today is someone I really enjoy having with me, and that is Rabbi Levi Atzon, Associate Rabbi of Linksfield Shul, and my rabbi. And our topic today is our past impact on our present. And this is something that Rabbi Afzon actually often speaks about. So when he was asked the other day, you know, how it was going to be with him, he said, no, it will just flow because it's one of his subjects. If you would like to SMS us, you may at 34519. But before I go on, I just want to wish my husband, Leon, a very happy birthday today. Absolutely, and he's a great guy. I know you can't say that because you're subjective, but Liam is really cool. (laughs) Thanks. Carl Jung said, I'm not what happened to me. I am what I choose to become. What do you think about that quote? Repeat. I am not what happened to me. I am what I choose to become. I would say it's partially true. Okay, how is it partially true? Because in many ways what happens to us does form us, and that's not a bad thing. It's almost like we see our past as something to... Betray. Um, but we are our narrative. So you are your past, and you could take out of it and become a greater person. But to make believers that what happened to us didn't teach us wisdom, didn't define us, didn't develop character traits, didn't give us certain struggles, uh, wouldn't you say that's a bit... Wishful? Uh, uh, That's why I actually gave you this quote at the beginning, because I wanted you to say that, because I believe that our past... No matter what it is, the trauma of the past or whatever it might be, it does form who we become. There is a choice in that. I mean, if you look at a cycle of violence, for instance, and you look at violence going through generation, generation and after generation. But ultimately, a person can choose to change that. And I have seen it in, in people who have said, enough, I'm not going to actually perpetuate this legacy. Absolutely, but often that fire and passion to stop it comes from the background. In other words, the background did affect them, it just pushed them the other way. Mm -hmm. But to make believe as if what happened yesterday doesn't affect today, maybe in our actions. So yes, if yesterday I acted like a, you know, evil, today I can act good. But emotionally, our emotions are a build-up. They're a pyramid, and, and they build up. And to make believe as if our emotions of 10 years ago have no effect on today is ignoring the complexity of the human being. Now, what you choose to do with those emotions, how you navigate them is your own journey. But definitely, if you had a trauma 10 years ago, that trauma is going to play into your emotional makeup. Mm-hmm. You can use that to strengthen yourself, but it is there. Definitely, it definitely is there, and we've I've actually got a YouTube a bit later, which uh, is by the Fearless Soul, which is an emotiva- motivational uh, YouTube. I'm not sure who's talking on it; they don't say, but it's it says the best revenge is letting go and moving on with your life. So in this, you'll see that he actually talks about what we can uh, let go of. That instead of it paralyzing us. And saying that, you know, this is uh, who we are and this is who I'm going to be for the rest of my life, we do have the choice to say. So we could let go no. of the negativity, mm-hmm. but the actual memory is there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you think about it, in the Jewish people, we, we very much believe in memory. If it was all about letting go, why would we sit there sitting by the Pesach Seder every single night, every year, and commemorate the slavery, the bondage? Um, you know, people focus on the Holocaust, people focus on our history, obviously not as an obsession, but it's there because we don't want to neglect our past. And in many ways, if you look at Israel, the past has actually also formed what Israel is today, the drive that is in Israel. The the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, literally uh, literary prizes and uh, peace prizes and all of those for engineering, all of those coming out from people who have been persecuted and have gone through that, Jewish people going through that, is quite amazing. And 
I don't know if you agree, but I believe it is part of the struggle that has come before in, in generations of persecution. So it's interesting. One of my favorite uh, things I've ever learned interesting was that most comedians are Jewish or black. Oh, yeah? Why? Because of the persecution? Because of the, because of the past. Mm. That means comedy is, off, is always an outcome of uh, a certain bitterness turned into cynicism, turned into comedy. And it's people that often have been bitter, you know, beaten up a bit. They have it. In Yiddish, they have an expression, a bitter degelechter. Yes, my friend, in, my friend Judy in Australia is listening in now, and I know she will love that because she loves that saying. A bitter degelechter. In other words, like that, that dark humor and, and that eventually develops into comedy. So comedy, which is the, the funniest thing in life, is the birthplace, is, is pain. Mm. So true. And you know, Viktor Frankl says humor is a weapon of the soul. And that even in the concentration camps, they were all shaved and they were all standing outside. And his one friend said to him, um, what do I look like? And he made some wise crack, you know, that, uh, uh, and, and they laughed. And he was saying that in pain, sometimes just that bit of laughter can actually help you rise above the pain for a moment. But to appreciate that it's coming from the pain. Yes. In other words, don't neglect your past. Your past is beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's not worth forgetting. Celebrate it. So, you know, there's a phone ringing somewhere. It's not one of ours, I'll have you know. (laughs) Otherwise, Craig would be giving me hell. Um, You know, you say celebrate the past, but there are certain things. In order to heal the past, you actually, if there's trauma in the past, in your family background, you often have to look at a holistic approach of actually healing it. Um, That is emotional, spiritual, um, uh, physical, mental approach to it. And if you look at collective healing, um, uh, for instance, the Holocaust or genocide, uh, the Aborigines uh, um, here with our apartheid, you have to actually look at Reconnecting people with their past, with their values, their history, their uh, cultures, sometimes their values. Do you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's in the past that we find all our healing. Another one of the interesting things I've learned is that they made us, uh, uh, there's so many studies made out there, so I have no idea where this study was made, but they wanted to look for the common denominator of kids who have emotional stability. And obviously the cliche is they come from normal families, etc., versus, you know, traumatized families, but that's not actually what they found. They found the single biggest common denominator between kids who have an emotional and moral strength is that their family has a story and that the story was told to them. Mm-hmm. In other words, when you feel that you're not isolation, you feel like you come from a story. You know, the famous joke about the kid that comes home and says, Mom, you tell me we come from Adam and Eve and came from God, and Dad says we came from monkeys. Which one's right? <laughs> See, she says we're both right. I'm talking about my side of the family. He's talking about this side of the family. <laughs> so, like, think about when your narrative is that you came from apes. You don't really have much of a much to go on in order to give yourself strength. I mean, you go go to the zoo and look at a bunch of chimpanzees. It's not exactly going to motivate you to to reach your higher self. But when you you believe you came from people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, Leah, Adam, Eve, Noah, and and like you know the great characters, then you look back and say, "Gosh, I have the, my their DNA in me. I have strength in me. I have me. Moses in me. A Moses in me, exactly. We have a break now." Hey, Joe Berg, it's Yako Shwey. I can't believe it's already four whole years since my last show in your beautiful city. I'm really excited to be coming back and look very much forward to performing as well, to be sharing songs from the latest two albums. So make sure to be at Carnival City, Tuesday, August 28th. We're going to rock the city. Very much looking forward to seeing you all there. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human, and my guest today is Rabbi, Rabbi Levi Atzon, and we are discussing um, our past and how it impacts on our present, and you can SMS us on 34519. 
you know, the emotional ties between a child and ancestors, uh, do you feel that they're essential to the development of our values? Explain the question. Well, if you're looking at the values that we come from, do you think it's necessary to actually bring those values forward? Or can you, what happens to a child who decides they're going to take on a different religion or a different set of values? So it's interesting. I think we spoke about it last week at our weekly shear. One of the things that's fascinating is how the first few years of a child's life, there's very little education. It's education maybe through osmosis. You know, you put them in a good environment, you surround them by positive energy, but it's not, um, you're not talking to them and you're saying, do this, do that. You're not giving them big lessons on the profound ideas of the cosmos. What are you giving them? Love. Mm. And that's where the bond comes That's in. where the bond comes. And it's almost like God designed a reality that for the first few years of a child's life, it's just unconditional love. It really is unconditional. Mm. You, you, you don't discover much of the talents. Yes, every mom thinks that the two-year-old's the brightest thing ever. But ultimately, at, a, at two, you don't know that much about your child. You, you know, they have a lot to discover. Um, and therefore, the reason why God put that into the system is because the only way to transfer knowledge and history and legacy is on a foundation of love. So I do believe very much that when that foundation of love is healthy and stable and the parents were able to give unconditional love, that the transmission of religion and ethics and history transitions much easier. It's almost like a vehicle. When it comes to, through the pipeline of love, then the pipeline doesn't get broken. It goes through that generation. But when mm. the pipeline is broken, then unfortunately it's, it really struggles to pass into the next generation. So if you look back at the Holocaust then, when often those ties were broken, by force or if you look at genocide or even at the moment you know with children refugee children being torn from their parents it's going to take a long time to heal and perhaps the next generation will not heal it it's only if it's uh, certainly now they are talking about it more and giving emotional uh, help to to people in these situations sometimes that's right but if it's not given, it passes from one generation to another, that trauma, and often it's not spoken about, so it becomes a hidden fear, which goes inside, and the next generation thinks, well, we better not talk about this, because perhaps they get a reaction if they do. Do you agree? Yes, trauma is often the biggest legacy that parents leave to their children, mm. um, because it's not conscious. But it, it permeates every cent, every area of our life, and that's why there's so many stories about second generation of Holocaust survivors and the trauma that they've been through, and almost they call themselves the next generation of victims of mm-hmm. Hitler's, uh, you know, genocide. Um, and in my family, you know, having grown up with you know grandparents, parents who went through Hitler, but also went through Stalin, um, you see it. You see, uh, you know, the incredible people, but also a tremendous amount of pain. And did you, pa- d- sorry, but did you notice emotional distance, distance in it, that they were unable to share that their pain with you? Of course, because it, it's almost, how do you even transmit it? How do you, how do you share? Mm-hmm. What, what do you say? Like, it's almost like they feel like they have no common language. I'm talking, you know, Japanese to an English speaker. And also, very often, the pain is so deep that you bury it and you don't actually know how to verbalize it. Mm. You have to be taught how to verbalize feelings. And I don't think, you know, Holocaust survivors, the first priority in life getting out was to learn how to verbalize their feelings. Mm. So, like, you know, my grandmother, having buried her parents with her own hands and eyes. How do you verbalize Just tell it? that story again, because I know that a few people have said that story actually stuck with them. Just tell the story so again, it's my, please. My, my father's mother, um, she actually ended up passing away relatively young. I didn't get to know her well. I was uh, two years old when she passed away in her 60s. But um, during World War II, she and her father were in Leningrad, which was put under siege from the Nazis and because the only way to a- access Leningrad was with just one bridge and they put a siege on it and m- hundreds of thousands of people if not millions of people starved to death and one of the victims was her father who was a, a, a tremendous rabbi and uh, with incredible mind his name was um, Label Karasik a young man in his 40s 
my great-grandfather, and he succumbed. Now, the issue was, there was my, my, my grandmother was very passionate about giving him a Jewish burial, which means in the Jewish cemetery. And there was very little space in the Jewish cemetery, unfortunately, because everyone was dying. Mm-hmm. So she wanted to save a spot. The problem was that it was ice-cold winter, and it was impossible to dig. So how was she going to save a spot for her father? So for the next month, at least, she slept in the graveyard every single night mm. atop the grave that she was keeping for her father. To stop the ice from forming on it? No, to stop anyone else using the grave. Oh, my word. By the time she was over, she, she lost her teeth. I'm sure. Uh, she, it obviously affected her health tremendously. And after a month or whatever, a certain amount of time, she was able to bury her father. Mm-hmm. This was a girl in her teens. Gee. And what emotional scars do you feel were there and emotional strengths? <sighs> emotional strength? I mean, the woman went out and had 15 kids. <laughs> That's physical strength, too. <laughs> <laughs> Both are physical and emotional. She actually, the story goes that she had six children and then while still living overseas in the displaced persons camp, first it was in Germany, Russia, then it was in France, in Paris, they were put into this, like this old mansion and like each family got one bedroom and it was tough conditions. She had six children and she came to the US and it was actually a worthy of a Time magazine picture who shows up like refugees showing up with six kids a few years after the Holocaust. Um, and the doctors tell her that she can't have any more kids. And she was devastated. <laughs> Could you imagine having six kids? And yeah, being absolutely. So the story goes that she went to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and she, she comes crying, and she says, after burying my father and all the pain I've been through, I want to give names. I want to be able to create a new generation. I feel like it's six kids are not enough. Mm. And the Rebbe says, don't worry, you'll have more than you already had. And she ended up having nine more. Jeez. And one yes. of them is my father. Oh, my word. <laughs> wow. So pretty much every 11 months uh, she had. And, you know, uh, she, by now she has, what, 100 and just last night one of her grandchildren got married, has 125 grandchildren, 500 great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren. And how many cousins do you have? From each side, about 110, 115. <laughs> um, yeah, thank God. And We're just breaking for an advert. The best part of your day at the heart of your community. All the talk, all the music, all the news. Hi FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human. My guest today is Rabbi Levi Upson. And um, I just want, we're going to be playing a YouTube. It's by Fearless Soul. It's a motivational tube. The best revenge is letting go and moving on with your life. And I've chosen this because I want Rabbi um, Afson to discuss it. But we're also going to go back to his many, many cousins and his grandmother's 15 children. I mean, absolutely amazing. Thank you, Craig. The best revenge is actually not taking any revenge at all. It's not even holding on to any anger at all. It's moving on with your life. It's showing them that life is so much better after they're gone. It's easy to blame those that have wronged us for just about everything that is wrong with our life. If it wasn't for them, I would be happy. If it wasn't for them, I would have more money. If they didn't do this, I would be where I want to be. Most people get so caught up in blaming, they continue to blame and sabotage their own life long after the person is gone from their life. Most people hold on to the blame because it's easier than moving on. Having an excuse or a story of why they aren't where they want to be gets them sympathy from others. The victim role gives them comfort. And it is much easier than taking responsibility and moving on with their life. However, it is not, and will never be, a happy place to stay. Those who take responsibility for their life and are wanting to move on and put the past behind them are much more likely to gain freedom, success, and happiness. Now, this does not mean there aren't horrible people in the world that have done wrong by others. It is not condoning others' behavior. 
It is taking back the power they have from you when you are the one suffering long after they are gone. Who wins if you keep blaming them? Who wins if you move on, forget about them, and create the best life and success you could ever imagine? Who wins if you move on? Who wins if you forget about them? Who wins if you create your best ever life full of success and abundance? You win. Take back your power. Blame them for what they have done. But don't blame them for what you haven't done. Blame them for what they've done. But bless them for making you stronger. For making you better. Blame them for what they've done, but thank them for showing you exactly what you don't want. You can blame the world for bringing them into your life, but then get grateful for all the lessons it taught you, all the strength it gave you, all the perspective it gave you. Knowing your heart, if they knew better, they would do better. Knowing your heart, you don't need to take on any other negative energy. How good does it feel to take that baggage off your shoulders? To focus on building your future. What a blessing. Let go. Move forward. Never look back. The best revenge is not taking any revenge. It is simply moving on with your life. Creating the best version of yourself. The best part of your day. At the heart of your community. All the talk. All the music. All the news. Hi, FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human. I'm back here with Rabbi Levi Upton. And you can SMS us on 34519. What did you think of that YouTube? It's absolutely true. I'll be honest, I've heard it too many times, so it does sound a bit cliche, and the over-dramatization of the way they talk sounds a bit like, you know, Moses coming off a mountain with a new discovery that none of us ever thought of. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like You have a I've, way of putting things into words. <laughs> like I've heard of greater epiphanies, but absolutely, that idea that... I'll, I'll give it other words. There's a, a rabbi that was here f- this weekend. His name is Rabbi Paltiel. And one time he was talking about intergenerational pain and blame. And he says, it might be their fault, but it's your problem. Mm-hmm. And that is so true. Like, whatever. You know, if you want to have someone to blame, fine, blame them. Mm-hmm. If, that, if that makes you feel better. But it, but whose problem is it? It's your life. And that's very much what they actually just said here. You know, accept it, but... And then say, well, it's part of my life. Let me go forward with it. You know, let me take the strengths from it. You know, when I look back on my own life, even my father, I've, I've told you before, was a, 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 a wing commander, a fighter pilot in the Royal Air Force in Britain and a fighter pilot, as I say. So lost many, many people. His own father was decapitated in Burma. And it was never, ever spoken about. Now, my father's way was saying he, he, he actually got a lot of medals. And uh, when my brother asked him, why doesn't he collect his medals? He said, you don't need medals to fight a war. And he never would collect them. So it's, I think maybe one of my children might or grandchildren one day. But uh, that was the different way of handling it. Whereas, And he never spoke about his father. Ever, I had to find that out in a in a different way. But obviously, it did impact on his life. So you know, there are different ways that you can actually deal with a, gener- a generational trauma. My mom, on the other hand, lost her first husband as a pilot in the war, lost and shot down, and never found. So that's also never closure there, you know. And she had a way of minimizing things. So she made out that like. She was in the bombing of Britain, and it was amazing the the energy that was there and the you know she was i must admit she actually was with Churchill a few times and with uh, general Smuts, so maybe the energy was different for than for many other people but uh, where's my dad 
never spoke about it. So on the one hand, there was denial, and on the other hand, there was minimization. So, you know, it's it's difficult to actually find the truth that you yourself often in your life have to go exploring your family's history to understand what your own feelings are. Do you, do you 100%. think so? I also think the first generation, sometimes the trauma is too much for them to handle. Mm-hmm. Like, And mo- to be fair, most of the people that came out of the Holocaust are out of Stalin's purges. They didn't exactly walk into abundance. They walked into survival. Mm-hmm. You know, like my other grandfather survived the Holocaust and then w- had to spend 20 years under Stalin's rule till he make, could make Aliyah and go to Israel. So it's not as if anyone really walked into, you know, the golden age. And the first point was surviving, and the first point was thriving and rebuilding a world. I think it's the next generation or two generations later, which relatively we live in a time of much more abundance than, you know, the world lived in 1945 or, you know, the 1950s. And we have more time in our hands. As much as we like to claim we're busy, we actually have more time in our hands. We're not spending four hours a day cleaning our clothes in the in the river and, um, you know, writing letters. Um that we're now finally, and we could afford therapy, um, that right. we're finally able to address, uh, you know, and ultimately our pain is not nearly as excessive and as intense as the first generation who can compare. Our pain is there, but it's, it's, it's workable. Uh, you know, sometimes like you wonder if like surviving six years of, of a concentration camp, like how do you even work through that pain? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, today for one little break-in or for one, you know, heaven forbid someone's, you know, the car hijacking, we go through weeks of trauma. Imagine living for six years or five years or two years or one year under Nazi rule and how much of that trauma you saw every single day, mm-hmm. infinitely amount. Like, you know, I went through my own trauma recently and all I could think about during the episode was like, ultimately, they don't want to kill me. They just want my stuff. Um... But my grandparents lived in a world that everyone wanted to kill them every single day. Every si- Did you actually think of that while it was happening yes, to you? Yes, I, I thought about that. And definitely after, it was like really like my grandmother. So she lived in Moscow. Okay, so my other, uh, Both my grandparents had their stories. But my mother's family, imagine her husband going to work every day in Moscow, which was a very anti-Semitic space. It was, he was religious, so therefore he could be arrested any time for being religious in communist Russia. For 20 years, every day, she saw, said goodbye to him at 4 in the morning as he took a three-hour ride to work, not knowing if she'll see her husband. There's no cell phones. There's no way of knowing if anything happened. Only when he comes back 8, 9 o'clock at night, she, can she breathe again. Mm-hmm. Just try to imagine that. Forget about you know losing her whole family in the Holocaust and everything. Just the amount of pain and trauma. It's unbelievable how much people have been through. Mm-hmm. And survived. And survived. And, you know, I, I often, I was actually talking to a cousin of mine the other day. We were talking, because she was talking about her own father's uh, war experiences. And, um, you know, I think just to be able to survive that on whichever side you are on is, n- needs tremendous courage. And, and I think that's where a narrative is so important, telling a story. So even if we, you're another generation to me, obviously, but even if my generation, which was the first generation after, um, tells the story to our children, it's very important to actually tell the story so they can understand their strengths. They can understand that actually they come from a family of great courage and great strength. And... um, or obviously if they come from a terrible family background to actually know that as well so that they don't repeat it. Hmm. Do you believe in stories? So it's interesting. One of my favorite TED Talks is a guy, an Israeli guy named Yuval Noah Harari. Um, he's written some very, very powerful books. Um, Homo sapiens, I think he wrote, and Origins, etc. And his point is that what makes the human being unique over any other animal is the, our ability to create narratives. So like he brings an example of money. Money's a narrative. We all agreed that a dollar is a dollar, so we agree, like, it, it, it has no inherent worth. Whatever, he takes it a bit far, you know, like, you know, often when you find one idea, you try to paint the whole world in one idea, which I never like. I think life is a little more subtle than one idea. But that point resonated, that, that, that one of the great strengths of the human being is the ability to create narratives. So you can look at the Exodus story as a story of trauma or a strength. You could look at the Jewish history of persecution as a story of trauma or strength. You could look at religion as a story of burden or responsibility or privilege. 
you know, the famous story of someone that came to Rabbi Moshe Feinstein in the sometime in the 50s or 60s, and he says, all my kids are leaving the faith. Uh, you know, and I've sacrificed so much for my religion. So Rabbi Moshe asks him, he says, when you came home every day after you struggled for Judaism, what was the first words that came out of your mouth? So he says, It's difficult to be a Jew. Ah. So what did your kid hear? What did your kid hear? The kid's thinking, you know, dad is a loser. Forgive me for for fighting this fight. <laughs> what do I need it for? And that's why, like, often people talk about Holocaust education as well. The Holocaust education is so important, but when it becomes the single most focal point of being Jewish, then you, you can imagine the Jewish kid telling themselves, if really all about being Jewish is remembering the Holocaust, let me just assimilate and the Holocaust won't happen to me. That can't become the single biggest narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, like they did research a few years ago, one of the things that people resonate in the United States more with being Jewish than anything else is the Holocaust. Now, there's something you know, strong about that, but it's also something very sad. If the number one feeling of being Jewish is that you remember the Holocaust, what does that tell you about feeling Jewish? Mm-hmm. That we're persecuted. That, that, that's a dangerous narrative. Mm-hmm. Chief Rabbi Sachs speaks about it. I remember when he was at Sinai and Daba, he spoke about it. He says that the narrative has cannot be that we're the persecuted people. It has to be we're blessed and we're lucky and we have to be allied unto the nations and we have such a legacy, a privilege, etc. And every family has the ability to pass over different narratives. What narrative are you sharing? And I do also believe that there is darkness and light in every story. You know, if you if you look deep enough, you'll you'll find the darkness. But then you have to actually uncover the light as well, which I think is what Rabbi Sachs also often talks about. You know, actually accepting that there is dark. We don't understand where, what the darkness is, and we never will from from our perspective. But at the same time, look and see. Where our light comes So what's from. interesting is, uh, having spoken to adults who went to visit the concentration camps, that often happens. Like, uh, you know, I spoke to two people in the past two weeks about their concentration camp experience. And one of them tells me, he says, 25 years ago, he traveled to Maidanik. And him and his wife look at each other, and his wife turns to him and says, we're keeping kosher. Not like, what do you think? We're keeping kosher. That means at the right stage and the right perspective, even a place like Auschwitz, Majdanek, you know, like uh, walking into a gas chamber, can give that perspective that says, like, it's almost privileged to be Jewish. So mm-hmm. even, like, the darkest place can create a narrative. And someone shared a YouTube video, like, on, it was very powerful, where a guy, um, he shares a story. He was a survivor himself. And he lived in, the, he was an Hungarian Jew, and he was close to the Munkacha Rebbe's son, or son-in-law, and he's about to be put on the train, etc. And he turns to the to his mentor and he says, um, "You know, we're all dying to sanctify God's name." And the mentor said something which is a bit harsh, but there's there's a there's something. To, he says, "Those of us who are dying are not being given the choice. Mm. You want to sanctify God's name, survive." And stay Jewish. And put on tefillin. Mm. And keep kosher. And that will be the greatest sanctification, that you could walk out of Auschwitz and you could walk out of the Hungarian Holocaust and put on tefillin after that. That is a sanctification of God. He says, don't die for God, live for God. And, you know, on that story, I'll tell you a story of someone, a a survivor that uh, Shira and I met, my daughter Shira and I, when we were in Poland. And um, this man actually told us that he was a, a child. He was a, a 16-year-old. His family had been taken away. He was left in the ghetto, and every morning he had to clean up the bodies and the ghetto and everything. That was his job. And one day he was looking out of this little window. He was in a very small space, sharing it with masses of people. And he looked out of the window and he actually saw the night sky. And he said he spoke to God and he said, "If." You keep me alive. I will dedicate my life to telling this story and to also showing that you were still here. Anyway, he did survive. 
And we met him because he was with the Australian contingent and he had come with a group of, of, of uh, students to come and tell the story. Now, his story, he's still, when we saw him, he was actually sitting on the pavement in a state of shock and we stopped to see if he was all right. And then he, told, he asked if he could tell us his story, which he did. And, um, and then I saw him again in Jerusalem. And I actually, uh, it was on a Shabbos, and we were staying in the same hotel. And I saw him with this group of teenagers. They were all sitting on the steps outside the hotel, and he came up, and he was laughing with them and talking to him. And I actually, uh, he and I sat and chatted for a while, and I said, you certainly kept your promise. I said, look at how you are relating to these children who have just, you've just told a horrific story to in Poland. And here you are celebrating life in Jerusalem and telling them how to go on with their lives with strength. You know, it was such a lesson that he was showing. And it was that sanctification of uh, Hashem's name that he actually decided he was going to go on living. His entire family were killed. Mm. Many times I've heard from my teachers that for much of Jewish history, the, the, the ultimate sacrifice was dying for, you know, God's name. And so much Jewish blood has been spilled. You know, someone was telling me they were just in uh, Europe. And I was like, that place is soaked with Jewish blood. I mm. mean, not only from the Holocaust, the Kazakhs. I mean, gosh, literally unbelievable. But today's challenge for most of us, unfortunately, there's still people who die, you know, like in Israel and other places. But on the most part, for most of us, we're not being asked to give our life up. We're asked to dedicate our life to something. Mm. And in a way, it's harder because it's not it's not a once-off. It's not just, you know, like, unfortunately, death is a, it's a once-off. Living every single day, waking up and, and continuing to believe and waking up and continuing to, f- to feed the faith and to pass it over to another generation, that's a different level of sacrifice that cannot be, you know, um, diminished. It cannot mm-hmm. be looked down upon to be a Jew today in a world of secularization and in a world with a bit of anti-Semitism is a challenge. And the God, God's calling each and every one of us and saying, sanctify me. How do you sanctify me? By getting up in the morning mm-hmm. and putting a smile on your face and being proud of who you are. And I think, you know, that can be for, for every religion, every Absolutely. good religion, every religion that every way of lives, life. every way of life. Everybody who has a value system to actually wake up in the morning and decide to make a difference to other people, to their own lives, to actually embrace life and in a very God. positive way. Absolutely. And to honor a higher being, definitely. And for us, obviously, it's Hashem. Thank you, Craig. I'm Dennis Prager, and I invite you to join me and my guests. As we debate the state of the world and the issues that really matter, Sunday to Thursday nights, 7 p.m., you've got a date with me right here on your radio on 101.9 Chai FM. Stay relevant and up-to-date. Keeping you informed. This is 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human, and I have Rabbi Levi Upson with me, and you can SMS us on 34519. We're talking about, or we're supposed to be talking about the past, impact on the present. We are, aren't we? We were talking about values too, and and carrying those forward. Now, I'd like you just to uh, listen to this. Hirschland's school is promoting an Explore to Win More competition. It started on Monday the 6th of August and it ends on the 27th of September. This will be a hunt for clues, pictures and riddles over a seven-week period in different Jewish sponsor stores. For more info, go to the Hirschland's Facebook page, which is www.facebook.com. Dot, uh, uh, slash Hirschline Schools. There are many prizes up for grabs. It's this Explore to Win More competition. And we're now in the second week, which is the 13th to the 17th of August. So there are clues, pictures, riddles. They'll all be at the sponsor shore, uh, stores. Josie Blue and Kalel Bookshop also, as well as separate in-store competitions for Josie Blue and the Kalel Bookstore. So, see info for more details. Are you going to go and look for riddles and clues, Rabbi? Can I plead the fifth? <laughs> what is your fifth? 
<laughs> it might be different to mine. <laughs> Rabbi, right. You know that uh, I don't know if you've ever read Thomas Moore's book, Dark Night of the Soul. He was a, a Catholic uh, priest at one stage who who left the the priesthood, and he, he, his philosophy is actually he's written many books. He, he got married and, and he's quite amazing. But he says that society is like an individual. It carries its own karma it, well, through wars, pollution of its history. Um, that, that karma that um, actually can be passed on. Of course. Um, have you read Outliers by Gladwell? Yes. That's pretty much his whole argument. His whole argument, I mean, first he talks about the individuals, but then he talks about our societies. Mm-hmm. They're very much, we're affected by our societal thinking. We, 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 as much as we think we're objective beings, there's very little about us that's objective. We have the ability to be objective. But nine out of ten times when we claim to be objective, we're totally subjective. That means almost everything, the way you see the world, is the way you were taught to see the world. Mm-hmm. None of us see the world in innocence. We were given a, almost like a mind behind the eyes. And through that, through that color, through that prism is what, or I would say prison is what we see the world. We see the world in that way. And societies see the world in certain ways. Like, you know, you go to the Far East, you go to America, you go to Africa, we have narratives, uh, collective narratives. Now, sometimes those narratives are great, and sometimes they're totally self-sabotaging. But everyone's convinced that the narrative is fact. And I think what's so important about narratives is to believe that just like you created one narrative, you could create another. Mm-hmm. Don't ever think the narrative is fact. It's a narrative. Now, it's a, if it's making you a better life, stick with it. As long as it's not, you know, fighting the truth. But if it's hindering your growth, instead of blaming everybody, blame your narrative and ask yourself, look around and see, you know, famous story that um, the Dalai Lama wanted to do research. He went, he met with a bunch of rabbis to discover what's the secret of the Jewish people. Like, how did they create a narrative that even while in exile, they still managed to be successful because, you know, him and his group are in exile. And he wants to know how to keep um, all his you know, his, his whole religion, his whole team around him um, with innovation and not just feeling sorry for themselves and not just with a victim mentality, even while living out of their homeland. And we lived out of our homeland for thousands of years. How did we do it? And all it was, I mean, obviously the miracles of God, etc. It's a, it's a narrative. So what did the rabbis say to the Dalai Lama? Do you know? I mean, gosh, they, they said a lot of things. Um, they spoke about the narrative and how we focus on Jerusalem all the time. But at the same time, we're told that wherever you are to create, um, to bring Jerusalem to wherever you are, that, mm-hmm. that balance of aspiring back home, but not living um, as displaced persons for the rest of your life. Wherever you are, make a flourish. And that's what's been so interesting, even though, you know, when you think of the Jewish people. I, I remember Beryl Wine, he's an historian. He mm-hmm. says that, historically never build a shul that's going to last you more than 90 years because he says the average amount of time that will stay in any area is 90 years wow so he says build it for 90 years then you can allow it to collapse um, <laughs> so we've got 90 years at linksfield considering uh, please our god shul. much more you know and mashiach shakana will be and linksfield will stay forever absolutely um but that narrative of but wherever we are, we created beautiful edifices and we created and, and we flourished where we are. Yes, we said every single day in Amidah, take us back to Jerusalem, take us back, we want to go back to Zion. But at the same time, flourishing where you are and that contrast, that ability to live with the past but embrace the present mm-hmm. is one of the great, great um, challenges. I remember hearing, um, reading about the five tips of a revolution and I'll only focus on one of them. It was a big revolutionary in South America that wrote like the five t- uh, the five ideas of revolution, and one of them was, you have to believe that the revolution could happen today, but at the same time be ready for it to happen in a thousand years. Hmm. And that ability of saying, you know what, I'm convinced I'm going to bring that change, you know, whatever change you want to bring, but at the same time, prepare for a thousand years. So as Jews, we believe Mashiach's coming every day. And every day we say, I mean, we believe. But at the same time, we don't stop building. Hey, why are you building a shul? Mashiach's coming. 
that's one thing. And at the same time, I'm flourishing where I am. And when mm. Mashiach comes, he'll take me. Mm. If my building's not ready, so he'll have to finish it. <laughs> um, but that ability of living with that same paradigm, often societies grab one paradigm. They either live with a past or a future, or they totally live in the present. And I think what's incredible about, you know, our history is that we're able to live so much in the history and in the future and at the same time fully embracing the present. In the present. I think that is so, so important. And I think also we fail to appreciate the power of gestures, of rituals, of, of, um, you know, which, which also keep us grounded and, and give us uh, our own narrative. But at the same time, allow us that to get out of uh, shame guilt or the collective kind of consciousness of of uh, of being a victim so i remember watching a talk called atheism 2.0 mm-hmm. that sounds <laughs> and, good yeah and and basically his argument is he says okay you know this guy's an atheist fine well, let's you know we, we we'll all choose to believe that nothing exists which is a faith as well but he <laughs> says but let's take something from religion people Re- religious people often have narratives and they have customs he says atheism, unfortunately, doesn't have much of a legacy. You know, it's a relatively modern idea, so there's no tradition and there's no customs. So customs make us. Our family does this. Our family has this custom at Pesach. Mm. That our family, you know, celebrates this way. Rosh Hashanah looks like this, etc. And, you know, the modern person might look and say, ah, superficial, superstition. But that's narrative. Mm. And that connects a family. A hundred percent. That, and you see it, you see when, like, especially when people have joyous events, they go to weddings, they go back to their hometown, wherever mm. they live, even if the whole year they're not with their family, they go back home and they celebrate their legacy, you know, so they dress in pink, another person dresses in wild red. Who cares? But that's their narrative. Now, objectively, it's stupid. But the truth is, everything about the human being objectively is stupid. If you want to, if you want to be cynical, then you could be cynical about anything. Mm, mm. You could be cynical about love. You could be like, if you want to be cynical, you could be cynical about anything. But the truth is to stop the cynicism and appreciate the beauty in these customs and these habits. Uh, uh, absolutely, and I think for me that's one of the greatest things uh, in Judaism are the rituals, and you know that 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 are there. What I wanted to. Um, Actually, ask you, but I, th- I think Craig wants to break for a, an advert quickly. A frequency like no other. 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human, and I'm with Rabbi Levi Upson, who's just been complaining about being interrupted all the time. It's until okay, I'm he used heard, to it. I also have my show. Yeah, and until he heard that his own show was being uh, <laughs> spoken about. And all then. I could think about then is, gosh, in two hours I have to be back here. Just kidding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, this in the dark night of the soul, Thomas Moore also said that a, a society can't move forward if its values and its ideals are hidden behind failures, mistakes, um, um, feeling that it was all bad. Do you do you do you feel that that's right? Do you feel that you can only move forward um, if you deal with your past? Absolutely. Mm. I think often we try to look for excuses why um, certain societies advance and certain societies don't, and we often look for simplistic answers. Blame it on race. Blame it on, um, I don't know, color, gender, gender, gender creed. Absolutely. Um, we often look for the simplistic ones, mm-hmm. but that, that's nonsense because uh, there's no objective difference and there's no reason why one should, what should be failure or not. The only reason I think that you can look and say why certain groups are more successful than others is the narratives they create, Mm -hmm. because that's an objective difference, and that's something that's changeable. See, the problem is when you blame things on race or gender, you're pretty much saying, your life is botched. You were born to the wrong race. You were born to the wrong gender. You have the wrong color of skin. You're over. That's nonsense. A narrative, just like you create a narrative A, you could create narrative B. That's a much more empowering thought. That Mm -hmm. means you don't have to label anybody. There is no room for xenophobia, racism, anti-Semitism, anything. Because it's not, all those things are based on the fact that you hate someone for something they can't change. What is a guy supposed to do? Mm-hmm. It often boggles my mind as a Jew, I'm hated for the mere fact that I was born. Like, what does that mean? Now, if you disagree with my narrative, let's discuss it. Mm-hmm. 
and you could either respect my right to have a wrong narrative or I can respect your right to have a wrong narrative. But the point is, a narrative, we can have a conversation. When you're hating me or putting me down for something that is beyond my control, well, th- then that's just pure bigotry and that's, that's, that's petty and small and actually distasteful and disgusting. Mm-hmm. But when society stopped going down that route and stopped hating people for stupid, superficial things, but rather start having discussions, open discussions about narratives. What is the narrative that these people have bought into? Mm. What's good about it? What's bad about it? I think then we could actually start healing ourselves and have Uh, respect for one another. I have to agree with you. I think then the world would start healing. You know, uh, I read somewhere that regret means to weep because it keeps us stuck in the feelings, whereas remorse means to bite, for instance, to take a morsel. That's that's where remorse comes from. So it almost, it said, pricks you into an awareness and a new behavior, remorse, because it makes you actually look at it, change your life, um, and by changing your attitude to to what you can. And taking the beautiful of your past with you. Absolutely. Because no narrative is fully dark. Absolutely. And, you know, your wife, Chaya, actually sent this out to this quote by the Baal Shem Tov, and I loved it. It was on, on Friday. A soul may descend from its place high in the heavens and live in this world for 70 to 80 years just to do a favor for another, a material favor or a spiritual one. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful. From the Baal Shem Tov. And then... You, you, uh, we're going to wrap up in a minute, but you actually wrote an article this week in our Shul newsletter about the generosity of the present and, um, how actually it's a, it's a generous world in many ways with people giving away their entire fortune. Absolutely. Or their half their fortune. You've got one minute to. Charity is a narrative as well. Mm, It is. I was watching a talk yesterday of a guy that says that he had only $10 to his name and he gave them all away. And that was the turning point in his life. <laughs> okay, in other words, some of us are very wealthy and are poor in our headspace, and some of us are very poor in our pocket, but wealthy in our mind. And if you you need convincing from a secular source, go read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It has the same argument. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> On that note, we're going to have to end. It's been so nice having you with always me, Rabbi. Always Always enjoy it. And next week, I've got Norman Schwab who's coming on my show, and he's going to be talking about the revelation in his father's trunk, which was full of correspondence in German, and it's a transnational story between the Nazi Germany and South Africa, Incredible. and uh, it's Ricky Lyon's father. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've read the yeah. book. Okay. Incredible book. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to be ending with a song by Leo Sayer, Don't Wait Until Tomorrow.